Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. We often use trees as a shorthand for how well our ecology is doing. We generally see more trees as a good thing. Today's guest, however, Ben Rawlins, has seen the proliferation and movement in habitat of various types of tree as an indication of how fast and how seriously our climate is changing. And he's here to tell us what that might mean for our future. Welcome to Future Imperfect. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Future Imperfect. I have with me Ben Rawlins, who's a writer and journalist, and he's written a book about forests, and we're going to go into more detail about that. Ben, could you introduce yourself in any way, shape or form you feel right, um, possibly even by song? No, that's a joke. And tell us about this book, and then we'll talk more about that whole area. Sure. So my name's Ben. I'm 47. I've got two kids, and I live in the Black Mountains in Wales. I came here because my wife's family's from here. But prior to that, I've lived in Africa for many years and in the United States. And I've worked as a journalist, political analyst, activist, human rights researcher. And now, uh, for my sins, I have founded a climate change college called Black Mountains College in Wales, which is informed by some of the stuff I saw in the Arctic, which made me appreciate the urgency of the changes we need to make. Well, wow. okay. Well, we could start with that. Can you tell me more about that college? That sounds absolutely fascinating and and very um, worthwhile thing to do. But but quite a complex thing to do to start a college. I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> and if I was going to do it again, I would do it quite differently. But yes, I mean, in a way, this is the sort of end of the book, and it's a perfectly good way to start at the end. All of the sort of insights I found on the front line of climate change in the Arctic, and the Arctic is warming faster and has been warming for longer than the rest of the world, made me realize that we're not ready. I think that's abundantly clear to people increasingly as the years go by, that our governments and our institutions are not responding adequately. And I don't just mean by cutting emissions, I also mean by reimagining our way of life. Um, for me, I think the takeaway of that journey around the Arctic is that 
climate change and all of the kind of related catastrophes that are already underway as a result are well beyond carbon. This is also about our way of life. This is about a destructive attitude towards nature. It's about our relationship with the natural world and each other and the kind of political systems and economies that have grown up based on, to be blunt, raping the natural world and extracting value. All our language, our whole concept, you know, everything about the way in which we relate to our habitat has become really difficult. And we need to be reimagining that. And that's really at its sort of most bold what the college tries to do. In practical terms, we're doing short courses to do with regenerative horticulture, composting, coppicing, so ways of extracting timber without cutting down the forest. We've got some online courses on shareholder activism and kind of flat pack democracy. And we're doing some residentials on climate adaptation, sort of retreats about reimagining ourselves and our relationship to the world and each other. And then we're doing vocational courses. So one year NVQs in coppicing, regenerative horticulture and seasonal catering. So cooking with the seasons. And in time, we have plans for a sort of interdisciplinary degree, which is mainstreaming ecology, neuroscience, politics and economics. And that will be validated by Cardiff Metropolitan University. But I'm on a journey to raise about six million quid to make the degree part happen. The other stuff is happening already. So in a nutshell, that's sort of where I personally have ended up after this close encounter with climate change. Good grief. Um, Okay, well, that sounds admirable. I mean, how do people contact you if they're interested in getting involved in that? Um, So blackmountainscollege.uk is our website. We've got short courses on there on the What's On page. NVQs are free in Wales. So if you're based in England and you want to come and study for a year, come and join us. Uh, It's three days a week. And there's a donate button if you'd like to make a contribution. I'm raising money all the time. Wonderful. Well, that's great. So tell me a little bit about this moment in your life when you suddenly saw the changes happening and that I think triggered you to write about this book called The Tree Line? That's right. So my former life, as it were, was as a foreign correspondent and human rights researcher in Africa for about 10 years. I studied Swahili at university because I did a gap year when I wanted to escape from my small town in England and go very far away. And I fell in love with Tanzania. I learned Swahili and that took me in the end to a career in journalism and human rights. And I ended up writing my last book about the world's biggest refugee camp, which is called Dadaab, in the Horn of Africa. And that was at the time a city of 500,000 people who were fleeing drought and conflict in Somalia. And it was just becoming apparent, this is 10 years ago, that the conflict in the Horn of Africa was being driven by climate, that this was the beginning of the perturbations in rainfall patterns and so on. And I think that's been borne out by the last 10 years. So I thought, right, okay, if this is what we're seeing here, the Sahel is a very sensitive region where you can see climate impact. Where else on the planet can we see climate change as history, where it's already happened, where we can get a glimpse of the future and we can learn some of the lessons, both practical and also emotional and psychological, that we need to learn in order to get ready for this coming change. So that's why I started looking at the Arctic. And quite quickly, I came across this image of the tree line moving north. We've all heard of the ice melting and the permafrost and the polar bears and all the rest of it. But I hadn't grasped that the vegetation line, the line of vegetation was, of course, galloping towards the North Pole, turning the white Arctic green. 
And I thought, wow, that's a hell of an image and I'm going to work with that. So this is because trees of that type can only grow at a certain temperature, I presume, and therefore that makes a maximum north. But that maximum north, if suddenly young trees that grow north of that go, actually, it's okay here, they can then grow. And then you get this line, this advance of the ends, if you like, this march of the trees north, which actually isn't as kind of romantic as we think, because it's actually marking a very clear change. You know, they either can live there or they can't. So it's a very clear indicator, I would imagine. That's exactly right. Yeah. So the tree line is one of the definitions of the Arctic Circle. The other definition is the 10 degree average temperature around the North Pole. And both of those things are zooming north. The line of latitude on the map is not changing, but those natural demarcations of the Arctic Circle are moving. Just to be clear, the trees are not uprooting themselves and marching with their roots, but (laughs) the conditions for the forest are improving. And so trees that pollinate really fast or spread themselves, disperse really fast through wind pollination, like birch, for example, are spreading at 50 metres, 100 metres every year. You're getting more and more seedlings further and further north. And this process has been underway for 50 years. I spoke to people in Norway who were born on the tundra and whose town is now in the middle of a forest. So this has been going on for quite some time and it's accelerating. So the trees are moving faster and faster towards the north. And in some places they'll run out of land because the Arctic Circle, the Arctic Ocean will stop them. Wow, that's really interesting. So you've got average temperatures which are retreating north. So is it a particular type of tree? You talked about birches, and those are pioneer trees from what I can vaguely remember from some of my studies. Yeah. And they're a sort of pioneer species. And those are the species that would grow first and then change the landscape as they grow. Yes, that's right. So I've learned so much in writing this book. And as ever, when you learn lots, you want to share it. So please do read the book and get into the detail. But I found it absolutely fascinating that the boreal forest is relatively species poor. It's not like the Amazon rainforest where there are thousands of species in a square meter. In the boreal forest, there's a few hardy conifers and deciduous trees, which have come and gone with the ice ages over the last millions of years. So these trees, these species are people for whom climate change is their core business. They've been riding the tides of ice up and down with the ice ages for millennia, and they've adapted with this very, very wide climate niche. So you have Scots pines, birch, spruce, for example, nearly at the equator, but you also have them right up there at the tree line. And that means these are the survivors, if you like. And there are actually only seven species at the tree line. So that was really handy. If you want to write a book, you can chop it up into seven chapters. So (laughs) we've got pine in Scotland. We've got birch in Scandinavia. We've got larch in Siberia, spruce in Alaska, and balsam poplar in Canada, and then mountain ash rowan in Greenland. And each of those species is responding in different ways. And each of those species has a fascinating history about why it's even there in the first place. So delving into that history is an opportunity to reflect on the impact humans have had on the Northern Hemisphere, why larch is in Siberia, for example, and pine is in Scotland, and it's not what you think. And also then to think about the future. Say, well, we need these trees, and if it's getting warmer and they're not sequestering carbon and they're not transpiring in the way that they should, what does that mean? What does that mean for our assumptions about offsetting and how we think we're going to survive? 
And I would presume that tree cover changes the albedo, the sort of reflectiveness of the landscape as well. So that strikes me that might be an accelerating effect because I think snow basically reflects more light back into the atmosphere. So it has a cooling effect. And we get that idea of of snowball earth in millions of years ago, that moment where almost the whole of the planet was encased in ice. Um, But this presumably means that the further it gets, the more it will absorb and it will be an accelerating phenomenon. Is that right? That is true. And I think one of the many sort of interesting conventions that I had upended in doing this work was we think that planting trees is good. More trees is good. We need more trees, but actually in the right place. And the Arctic is not the right place because when those trees spread exactly right, they push the snow out of the way. The albedo is not reflecting all that radiation back into space. And then the roots, of course, are warming the soil. They're increasing microbial activity. The birch is pioneering and paving the way for other species, more trees. So the trees are actually accelerating permafrost melt. And it gets worse because in Alaska, the trees are food for beavers. And the beavers are then damming rivers water carries heat much further down into the permafrost, melting permafrost. So the the trees are actually an accelerant of warming. And there's an awful lot of gases trapped in the material in the permafrost. I remember watching a documentary on the way that they build foundations in some sort of Arctic research stations where they sort of, they melt a tube of the earth and they just put the piles in and then they let it freeze again. But that only works if the ground is so cold, it's just going to freeze again. Whereas presumably they're all starting to sink into the mush. They are. And so there's so much fascinating stuff happening in Siberia, which is also terrifying, but whole cities sinking and these buildings tipping up. And most frighteningly of all, oil refineries where big storage tanks are are cracking because they're based on the permafrost. So you had this huge oil spill from Norilsk when I was there, uh, turning the whole river red. But what I found most fascinating actually was meeting some of these scientists who are studying in Siberia, looking at permafrost and methane. And I didn't realize that there's only four sites in Russia where they're measuring methane, where they actually have a sense of what's happening with the permafrost. And even that data is really patchy. It's really hard to capture methane. So we know theoretically that there's this huge problem, but actually we cannot quantify it. There's all these unknowns. Um, You know, there's a sort of complacency that, you know, we must follow the science of climate change. Actually, the science of climate change is riddled with all sorts of unknowns and all kinds of unexplained feedbacks, which, you know, we're just figuring out all the time. So that's partly also what, triggered the college was, you know, my God, it could be so much worse. We just don't know. And therefore we have to prepare for uncertainty. Yeah, I mean, the natural world is so immensely complex and you do get unintended consequences, don't you? You think one thing and then something else happens. You think, ah, in hindsight, that was obvious. If only I'd thought of it. But, you know, it's all so interrelated. I mean, the idea that these trees then extend the territory for beavers that then knock them down for food and create dams to create more landscape for them well, it won't be landscape it will be wetland yeah. which has an effect of melting it faster and one tends to think of the natural world as in balance but it kind of is sometimes but it's also horribly not in balance in other ways you know it can it can have a runaway effect and it doesn't really care about us this is one of the things i sometimes explain to people it doesn't really matter as far as it's concerned. They're just yeah. doing their thing. Beavers are being beavers. Yeah. They don't have existential crises about destroying their environment. They reproduce, they die. 
and they're running around doing beaver things. Yeah. Um, we we can see that this is going to cause massive problems. We can project into the future. And, you know, you're going to have, well, there are huge populations being displaced. So we have models for that. But what do you think the consequences are going to be of even more disruption? Are places that are more familiar to us, perhaps in the West, going to be suffering this kind of displacement? Is it already happening? It is already happening, and it's happening in places that are not hitting our new screens. And I think often, like the, the wars in the Horn of Africa, it's the war that's reported. But actually, the underlying drivers are this collapse in food prices, this conflict over water resources, and so on. And I think when we look back now, you know, from the very first famines in the 80s in Ethiopia and so on, what we see is a mounting pattern which in hindsight is going to look very different. And I think it's the same now. When we look at the history of North America in 10 years' time, we're going to see the harbingers of what is in the future now actually in the present and in the past already with the wildfires, with agricultural yields down by 30% in North America this year, and you know the breadbasket in Ukraine and all of this stuff. I mean, it is already happening, and it's not just the tiny islands in the Pacific. Um, it's all these other kind of systems changes, like the cost of living crisis. Actually, we should be talking about that in climate terms, because the base inflation is being driven by the cost of food, by the futures prices of wheat and maize and soya beans because of these collapses elsewhere. And so nobody's joining the dots, I feel. Mm. And everything, I think, if you take the lens of climate and the changes, all of these things start to look connected. I mean, I could say a lot more about sort of Siberia, but one of the scientists I met who I talk about in the book has done modeling where she's got a very clear picture of the zone of human habitation and what is possible in Siberia under certain scenarios of warming. But what she can't predict is the border policy of the Russian government. And if the Russian government allowed migration and she can model all the species moving north except humans, and if you were to allow humans to move freely you would expect them to colonize the whole of Siberia over the next 80 years. You can see the tension then, mm. and you can see then what some of the political fallout's going to be. Does the movement of the tree line mean that if you go further south, you're actually changing the crops you can grow further south as well? Does it mean more land is being opened up for food growth, perhaps? It does. So it means lots of different things. The forest is shrinking, or, or at least the forest is shifting. So the window of the forest is going up and the steppe in Kazakhstan and Mongolia is expanding and the farmable land in Siberia is rapidly increasing and Russia is investing billions in farming in Vladivostok and other places in Siberia. And it's aiming to be the number one wheat producer in the world in the next 10 years. And they probably will. Um, so Russia is sitting very pretty from a sort of geostrategic point of view in terms of taking advantage of climate change. But then if you look at Africa, we're talking about genocide. I mean, a couple of degrees of increase and you're going to get massive crop failures all over the place. So it's different in different places. Mm. That's, I think, one of the really important things to understand. I mean, here in Wales, it's pretty wet and we don't grow wheat above 300 metres, but soon that's what we're going to be doing. So we have to get to know our neighbourhood. We have to get to know our ecosystems and see how they are changing because how they fare is going to be how we fare. 
that's interesting. So why can't people grow wheat above 300 metres? Is it because the soil is too thin or... Too cold and it's too wet and miserable. Yeah. Right. But you could see that shifting. Changing. That is interesting. I was studying a little bit about the medieval period and how grape harvests in the south of England were fairly substantial. English wine, whilst not being the highest quality, it was still widely produced. There's a little bit coming back, but I wonder whether... Things like grapes or maybe even olives, but you know, you typically imagine those as being sort of Mediterranean. The places where you can plant those and they can grow successfully is kind of creeping by 50 meters or whatever it was. The tree line is moving, you know. That's right. Wow. Yeah. I can't remember the date, but I think London is going to have the climate of Barcelona by 2050, if not sooner. And the climate velocity of the UK is the equivalent of going south by 12 miles every year. Good grief. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So water is going to be a very interesting issue because obviously in Spain, water is, is, is a huge resource. But are we going to lose the raininess? I presume we have to if we're going to be like Barcelona, unless we're going to be a wet and steamy Barcelona. Well, one thing perhaps to tell your listeners about is that we're having an ecological futures camp with Welsh water here at Black Mountains College camping at the end of August. It's going to be free and you can apply on our website very soon. It's not there yet. But what Welsh water have modelled is... Instead of a kind of, you know, it rains every day in Wales, that's a sort of traditional (laughs) traditional picture. What we're going to have is six months of drought and six months of floods. And we're already seeing that shift in that pattern of rainfall. And the question is really why I said earlier that we're not doing enough is if we were preparing, what we would be doing is looking critically at all our reservoirs so that we can catch enough rain when it does rain Mm. so that we can survive the droughts. Because at the moment, that's the problem. Yes. And of course, floods hitting dry soil, soil depletion is a big issue as well. That's going to sweep that around. And you then start to need more plant surface to avoid impacts on naked soil. Farmers are going to have to start modifying their plowing and, you know, the way they leave the land naked over the whole winter. That's just going to get swept down the mountainside. Yes. And we see that every winter here. I mean, one of the things I say in the book, it's a bit of a throwaway line, but I would like to explore it more in an article maybe, is that ecology should be an issue of national security at the moment. We should be having strategic planting. We should be having strategic water harvesting. We should be looking at which parts of the coast are going to be uninhabitable. We need to be building transport networks that are resilient, that are connecting the right kinds of places. I think people are going to be running for the hills. Uh, which is 
you know, we sort of made a bet on the hills here. Right. You know, and what I think people don't appreciate is the speed, mm. because the IPCC report, it lays it out in pretty clear terms, but not many people get through to page 87 or whatever it is. You know, all of this is not going to arrive at the end of the century in one fell swoop. This is already starting to happen. And it might sound like 1.5 degrees, 2 degrees is not that great. But when you understand what that means for crops and for the oxygen sequestering capacity of forests, it means that we are going to start to see food and water shortages and shocks in the next five to 10 years. And, you know, this kind of cost of living crisis is the first sign of that. Mm. And I sense it's only going to get worse. We talked about governmental level things, and some of these things really do need that kind of power behind it. But are there things that people can do locally or for themselves on an individual basis to try to help? Yes, I think so. And that's very much where I'm at with trying to set up this educational facility is that we can't wait for governments. And, you know, at the best of times, they're very imperfect institutions for looking after people. Yes, I would agree Um, with that, as would probably everybody, actually, (laughs) wherever they are in the world. Yeah, so I think there's a lot we can do. I mean, I think if we accept that change is happening, we accept that the status quo is not great, then I think it opens the door to action. There's an awful lot to do. And I think it starts with educating yourself, educating other people, being open to new ideas, questioning everything, looking at your assumptions about your kids, your family, your communities, your job, and not necessarily in a kind of despairing way, but saying, hey, come on, this is not the end of human life. Actually, in Northern Europe, we're in a pretty good place to be able to weather some of this and slow it down. And we need to be doing everything we can. We need to find that common purpose, both at the political level, but also the local level, growing more food, you know, really reconnecting with our environment, learning the names of all these beautiful plants that provide us with oxygen, teaching that to our kids. And then we stand a better chance of proper environmental laws that uh, respect the natural world instead of destroying it. Mm. So in a way, part of what you're doing, part of the book, is to try to help educate people. Because if people don't know this is happening, they can't be prepared for it. But at least if people are aware these things are happening and they're given some indication of what can be done, 100 million people doing a small thing makes quite a lot of difference, actually, on balance. Yeah, people are, what, what difference does it make? It's like, well, if there's a million of you doing it, it obviously makes a huge difference. You know, It does. And if every person on the planet planted six trees in their lifetime, we would already be in the right place, not in the Arctic. Mm. <laughs> um, we plant, everybody planted six trees. We would already be well on the way to drawing down uh, a significant amount of carbon to slow things down. Mm. So, you know, carbon is important in terms of slowing it down. It's not the only piece of the puzzle in terms of the Earth system. But what I did with the book, you're absolutely right, was it's a travel book. It's an adventure story. We're on a journey learning about the science and these places and these wacky people who drive these crazy big snow buggies up in the Arctic Circle. But we're also learning about the Earth systems and what's happening and ending on a positive note. But it's not, I hope, a note of false hope, because I've read too many books where it says, you know, we must choose if only da 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 da. Well, yes, but two degrees is coming. It's bad. It means this, but we can get ready for it. We can prepare. We can slow it down. We can work together. So I think one has to be clear eyed about the situation in order to be hopeful, because real hope comes from you know, being genuinely aware of the situation that you're in. 
Isn't there going to be a massive refugee issue? People being displaced from the landscape. I always think the word refugee brings with it too many connotations. It's like people that can't live in places where they used to be able to live and therefore need to travel. So there's going to be a lot of displaced people. There are. And I think the UN forecasts 3 billion by 2040, something like that, or 2050. I can't remember exactly, but it's quite soon. And I would say we're already seeing it. I would say that the refugee exodus from the Sahel region of Africa over the last 10 years is the thin end of that wedge. And it's principally going to come from there because that's the place that's going to be hit first with food shortages, but then it will start to impact other places. And I think I've seen reports talking about Central American refugees to the United States in the same terms, that the people are fleeing hunger, they're fleeing crop failure. And this is, you know, the the beginning of something. And so they're not economic migrants in the same way we might think of them as coming to sort of better themselves. It's like they've got no blooming choice. They stay where they are and die or migrate. Or they stay where they are and have a rubbish life, eking out a living. But the idea of economic migrants, I always find a little bit complicated. There are people who make the choice, Mm -hmm. but largely it's because there's an economy that's not sustaining people there. So I always think of Spain as very hot. Well, there are parts of Spain that are quite arid and hot. Presumably that's going to get worse, or or is it not as simple as that? Is it not as simple as places further south getting hot and places further north getting more warm? Is it a bit more complex than that? It's broadly right, but there are some tweaks. And I would urge people to look at the, well, the IPCC report itself sets out really clear scenarios and really clear maps. There's quite a lot of graphics on my timeline, which is at Ben Rawlins on Twitter, where I'm tweeting climate scientists who've done that mapping. The other thing you can look at is something called climatecentral.com, which is an American open data website where you can put any part of the world in and you can look in 3D Google Street View how it's going to look in terms of sea level rise. So you can predict all of that kind of stuff. But I think what I would say is there's a certain amount that we know, but there's an awful lot that we don't know. So we can predict certain temperature rises, but what we don't have any idea about is how the permafrost is going to respond and also how ocean circulation is going to respond. So if the Gulf Stream switches off, Britain will be actually probably pretty much the same for 10 or 20 years before it starts to get warmer again, because the Gulf Stream keeps us unnaturally warm at the moment. So all sorts of earth systems are in flux and are shifting. And, you know, that's like the sort of big changes in the United States. So you see like this line down the middle of the US where one half is snowing and the other half is 40 degrees because the jet stream's gone bonkers. So I think my takeaway from the book is just the earth is a wonderful, fascinating, complex system and she's alive. And, you know, you can't treat it like a ledger, like a game of accountancy where it's net zero and we put this in and we subtract that and so on. It doesn't work like that. We need a lot more humility and a lot more sacredness. The principles of agriculture, do we need to rethink agriculture? You talked a little bit about permaculture, which I find very interesting, the idea that you can grow things which can crop continuously rather than having to replant them and grow them from seed again. Do you think changes in the way we grow food worldwide is going to have to be a part of that plan? I absolutely do, yes. And I think the sort of tragedy about agriculture is that 
what's often called peasant or artisanal modes of agriculture were often very productive in terms of biodiversity. So you look at the Gwent levels here in Wales, where you have wetlands that were used as water meadows, or you have, you know, hedgerows and the kind of grazing within forests and so on that are sort of traditional practices. All of that was really good for biodiversity. Coppicing, harvesting wood from woodlands is fantastic for dormice and all kinds of other species. What we've seen, and it's actually only in a generation or two, is the capture of agriculture by the fossil fuel industry in terms of pesticides, fertilizer, all of those things directly come from fossil fuels and tractors and and all the rest of it. And it's because of this demand for production and cheap food and so on. And I understand that. But we can actually feed people so much more effectively on a small plot of land that was intensively cultivated using permaculture. I'd heard that, that in fact, the industrial agriculture per sort of square foot is actually incredibly inefficient. You know, the gardens, allotments, as we'd have them in the UK, your small area can actually produce quite a substantial amount of your food. Yeah. Because you're doing it in a small scale and getting best use out of every square foot. Yeah, there's a lot of research into this. There's also a lot of debate about it. But I think, yeah, for me, the answer is we're going to need also much more diversity in terms of different crops growing at different places because we need other species that are resilient and that are hardy that can survive in these very uncertain rapidly changing periods if we're just reliant on one gm strain of wheat which only grows under certain conditions then we're finished so we have to have that diversity and i think most countries in the world and britain is no exception have got so much land which is not used productively or not used to its best advantage. There's no reason why we couldn't be self-sufficient in food here in a way that was also compatible with nature. I always find it fascinating, the amount of energy put into people's lawns and the amount of time and effort into growing and keeping grass short and looking like a carpet. I always think I can see the aesthetics of it. You know, a bowling green can be nice, a cricket pitch can be nice, but... They should be the rarities. And, you know, there's so much more you can do with your garden than just have a green carpet with no biodiversity at all. Uh, I mean, at my farm, I've got lots of corners that I just leave wild because why not? They're great to leave wild. And I grow grass for my horses in particular. But there's always a tendency for people to want to tidy up the corners. And I like having these quite substantial parts of the farm, which We can't grow crops in them very easily because it doesn't really work, but they're brilliant for wildlife. You just let it get on with it. It takes no effort whatsoever, and it looks great. You get wild animals there. You get birds. You get all the insects. You get the wild flowers. I think it looks lovely, and this whole idea that it's untidy, I think, is a really bad way of looking at the diverse natural world. People are probably familiar with um, Isabella Tree's book, Wilding, but it was very interesting for me to see in the boreal forest this idea of nature as a dynamic system. So a forest, a static forest, is actually a bit of a biodiversity desert. Where you get the biodiversity is in the change, is when you burn the forest. So the Anishinaabe people, for example, First Nations in Canada, burn the forest every 100 years. And when they burn it, the first thing that happens is you get all these little shrubs. What lives on the shrubs is rabbits what comes after the rabbits is foxes what comes after the foxes is the wolverines and the bears and then you get the moose and the elk with other layers of forest so it's the edges the dynamism of the system that gives you the biodiversity and it's the same in scotland for example where 
you get the limit of the tree line where the pines stop growing, and then you get the montane scrub, which is willow, juniper, all these smaller plants which support all these species of bird that love the edge effect. So you have the snow bunting, the dotterel, lapwings, and hen harriers. They literally survive on that sort of two to three meter stretch. But when you remove that through deer or sheep browsing or whatever, or woodland plantations, you're taking away that habitat, but it's only a tiny piece. Um, But it's as a result of this dynamism of the shifting tree line that creates that. So I would totally agree. And I definitely think it's the scrub. We need the scrub. Woodland edges and and changes. You know, sometimes we've had this terrible winds recently and the, the storms and a few big trees have come down. And what I tend to do is I tend to leave most of it in place because it creates space in the woodland canopy and a whole bunch of stuff this summer is going to grow in that space. That clearing where that great tree was, whilst it's incredibly sad to see it, that's the beginning of the next phase. Those saplings will grow up and in 50 years there'll be more great trees there. But in the meantime, there's going to be this patch of kind of crazy scramble for this new opportunity in this little tiny patch of my local temperate woodland. And I kind of love that because I also like going back into it and watching it change. Mm. And one of the great things I've found about the lockdown is that I've lived in my local area more. I haven't gone backwards or forwards to work nearly so much to my office in Oxford. I've been here every day and I've seen tiny changes every day. I've seen new growth and I've seen things fall down and get very sad. And then I thought, actually, that's just the way of it. Things die, fall, and an opportunity for other things. So it's not change that we should be frightened of in many ways. It's how we manage that change and how we how we cope with it. And we should plan for it and not deny that it's happening in many ways. Absolutely. I mean, you probably know this, but in the Scotland chapter, I talk about the ancient woodland and what counts as ancient woodland. And ancient woodland is basically 50% dead wood. And dead wood, I think it supports four times as much life as a living tree because of all the bugs and the fungi and all that stuff. Right. And that is what gives the ancient woodland its biodiverse kick is that the beginning of life is death. You know, it's a cycle. So it's worth remembering that. And on the point about management, these people in Canada, the Anishinaabe, they were asked to produce a land management plan for their woodland. And they said, no, 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 you can't manage the land. You can use the land. So they changed it to a land use plan, not a management plan, because the land manages itself. That was their take. It's absolutely true. I do think we've also got to work on people being obsessed with tidiness as well. I don't know where tidiness comes from. I think it probably comes from control, actually, and people feeling they need to control things. And you can't control the natural environment, not without doing devastating damage to it. I think we've got to get used to things being slightly scruffy and untidy. Look at grass verges, you know, where there's no safety issues. Why are we bothering cutting them? Why don't we just leave them to go a bit wild and scruffy and bonkers? But the simple answer is some people don't like the look of it. And I just think, what a crap reason for damaging the world because you don't like the look. Well, start to like the look then. You know, change your attitude and then we can do something about it. All these bits of municipal land which we spend money on chopping down it makes me really frustrated because it would save us money and make the world better if we just left them to be scruffy well i think it's part of a broader challenge which is sort of where we started the conversation really which is looking at nature afresh looking at our habitat afresh and as soon as you start to see it as alive and you start to understand your dependence on it 
and you start to have, you know, what we're all born with, what my kids take for granted, which is that, you know, my God, you don't kill a beetle. You don't kill anything. It's got the right to life. That innate instinctive respect for other species, which we extinguish as we raise our kids, we need to actually nurture. And then I think the sorts of things you're talking about, that perspective shift is natural and it does completely become absurd to cut down grassland, which might be the habitat for something. I think we'll look back in 100 years and say, what on earth went wrong? You know, we, we forgot the world was alive, which something which actually only two generations ago was common amongst agricultural people in this country. Mm, wonderful. I think that's a really interesting place to end. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast. So the book is called The Tree Line. And is it available from all the usual places where you can buy books? All good booksellers. Yes, absolutely. And what about if people want to hear more about you? And you've mentioned the college. You've mentioned your Twitter feed as well. Do you want to re-mention that again? Yeah, that's at Ben Rawlance, which is R-A-W-L-E-N-C-E. So follow me there. And the college is blackmountainscollege.uk. Um, those are probably my two public places. Was there anything else you wanted to add that I've not kind of allowed you to say? No, I don't think so. It's been a pleasure and more power to anybody who wants to um, grapple with these issues and start to think about them more deeply. I think scruffy and wild is good. I, I've always felt that. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right, wonderful. Thank you very much, Ben. I really appreciate it. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.